talked with many of you and gotten a lot of input on exactly why you wanted to start a church here in Newburgh and trying to distill that down in a way that uh, we could communicate it to this community, to one another, as we seek to serve one another and serve the community in which we live. And the little pithy thing we're using to help give us a framework is uh, printed on the front of your worship folder, open door, open hearts, and open hands. And two weeks ago, when I started the series, the basic uh, blueprint was out of Acts chapter 2, and the idea there is that as we see God's people gathering together, that there is this reality that they sit, they need to learn. We need to learn. That's the open hearts. Our hearts are the center, scripturally, of where the mind and the will meet. What you love determines what you think and what you do. And so we see that people sat under the disciples' teaching. They needed a new heart. They needed to learn who it is that Christ is and what the gospel means. So that's the open heart part. And then what happens from there, and I know this is backwards in our order, but is open hands. We become generous because God's been generous with us. And then the extension of that, of course, becomes the open doors. Now, in our series, I'm going ahead and starting with the open doors. What does it mean to begin to be a community of faith? Not begin, you already are. But how do we continue to build on this reality of hospitality? How do we begin to continue, begin to continue, because it is always a beginning and always a continuing, extending grace and mercy and fellowship and hospitality to one another? How is it that we build on this call to love one another and then the reality that in loving one another scripture says that that's how the world will know about him is how we love one another and so this morning we're going to start in second samuel chapter 12 which may seem a little odd but i hope what you'll see is that one of the things that we'll need to do as we continue to grow in our ability to welcome people into the body of Christ and welcome one another into the presence of God is by honesty and transparency in our lives. And Scripture is pretty good about laying a pretty honest and transparent picture of the human condition and the quote-unquote heroes of Scripture. So let's put the text in front of us first. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 1 through 7 We're picking up the story here of King David after he's been made king and made his uh, well-known blunder. Blunder is an understatement. He's uh, slept with another man's wife. He's then killed the other man so that he can have the woman. And he has hidden it all and covered it up. But as we know, you really can't cover these things up for long. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and one poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle. The poor man had nothing except one ewe lamb that he had brought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and and his children. It shared his food and drank from his cup and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of their own sheep and cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. 
Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for the lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are that man. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, again we ask that as we open your word, we might again have eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, convert us. Change our hearts. And Lord, whatever is not true, whatever is not your word, may it quickly be forgotten that you might be glorified. In Christ's name, amen. How do you make somebody feel welcome if you're going to have people over? Usually... You invite them, for one thing. You let people know that it's a good thing to come over, to come and visit. And oftentimes we'll do a little cleanup around the house, right? But not too much, because sometimes if you clean things up too much, like have you been into a home where you're afraid to touch things because it's so immaculate? Usually those homes are free of children. And, uh, and they have little things that break down at eye level, which always makes me nervous when we... My kids are growing up, but it it makes you nervous. There are some houses that if they're too clean, you don't really feel as comfortable in it. It doesn't feel homey. There's this fine balance between having things picked up and feeling like a house and things feeling like a museum, like you're putting on too much of a show, that everything is neat and in order and has its place. You do things to make them feel welcome, comfort, food, The conversation is usually not terribly pointed. You want to just enjoy one another's fellowship. You want to enjoy getting to know one another. You give time. You try not to have a rushed event. You don't usually confess your sins to them, though. You don't usually sort of tell them all of the junk and rubbish in your life. You usually don't dump on them Usually we would consider that, what's the word, the, the abbreviation, TMI. You know, you invite somebody over the first time they show up and you tell them about all of your deepest, darkest secrets. It would be a little off-putting. But at the same time, an honesty and a transparency is key, isn't it? That as you have a conversation with these individuals, as you begin to fellowship, if you seem too aloof, if you seem too uh, clean, that you can't really be honest about who you are, people pick up on that pretty quick. If you're presenting a certain image, if you're having to wear a certain mask, the reality is that quite quickly people will see that you're not being honest with them. And so to be sure, one doesn't want to simply just disgorge all of uh, your life history, but at the same time, as you begin to have contact, and you hear a bit of their story, and your story connects, and you've experienced some of the same difficulties or trials, joys and successes, it's that interaction with one another, that honesty and transparency that begins to build a relationship and makes a welcoming environment. Now, as we go into this sermon and this text that I've read, some of you are probably figuring where I'm going with this. 
And we live in a culture that is so scandal-obsessed. We love to hear the dirt. We love to hear... I mean, a story like David's would just, you know, sell millions of newspapers. It does all the time. Every time a, a leader gets in trouble publicly, some scandal... Our culture seems obsessed to know all of the details. And in response to that, we have adopted perhaps uh, an idea that, you know what? Private things are private. Personal things are personal. And that this public display and discussion of one's sin and brokenness is really not appropriate. And I understand that because certainly there's a way to do it incorrectly. But at the same time, when, we, when I read Scripture, I see the story of Moses, who's far from perfect. We have David in front of us this morning, but even as we go into the New Testament, you read the Gospel of Mark, and the disciples are bumbling buffoons the entire book. Tradition tells us that chances are that Peter actually helped write that book, that he dictated it to Mark. And Peter's pretty honest about his own brokenness and that of the disciples. They don't get it, the entire book of Mark. They're hardly great heroes in the sense of being fearless and without question and without complications. And then we go on and we read about Paul, who's hardly a stellar example of piety. At least he, he killed and tortured Christians. He calls himself the chief of sinners. And so what I think Scripture is telling us is that there needs to be a transparency and a reality of honesty within the body of Christ. Do we need to learn how to do it well? Oh, absolutely. But the calling, the reality of the body of Christ being honest about its condition is the only thing that's going to encourage one another in the faith and allow us to to encourage those in the world. That we have a God who heals and restores. If the church seems like a place where everybody has been healed, past tense, I don't know that that feels real. Because I know it's not real in my life. I am being healed. It's called sanctification. So, three quick things. When we talk about this need to be hospitable and honest about our own condition, first of all, of course, we see in the text that it's terribly hard. It's terribly humbling, and also it is exceedingly healing. First of all, hard. It's hard to read this text, to see the great King David ripped down from his place of a God, a man after God's own heart. He was this Messiah figure. And it's hard to see David reduced to a broken and sinful man. I don't know if you've ever read this or you've been teaching Sunday school and you're kind of wishing that, that you could X this part of David's life out. 
There's the great thing where David kills Goliath. And then there's the great thing where David is patient and waiting on God to deliver the kingdom. And David doesn't kill Saul. And he shows great patience and he shows great courage. And there's all these wonderful stories about David. And there's a part of all of us that wishes that the Bible just wouldn't be so frank and honest all the time. What good can come from telling us that David had some real significant personal flaws. We'll talk about that more in the healing section. But I I think that it's hard for us to be honest. It's hard for us for two reasons. One, we don't want to see our heroes fall. Many of us raise up individuals. We have mentors. We have people that we've looked up to for years. And one of the hardest things to do is recognize those people's flaws. To have them... Uh, portrayed before us, when we encounter their flaws, when they let us down. So we hate to see our heroes fall. It makes it hard for us. But quite frankly, the other side is, if our heroes are frank and honest about their own sin and brokenness, that may give us pause about whether or not we're going to have to be frank and honest about our own brokenness. That we may want our heroes to be without sin because we'd like to believe that if we were like them, if we strove to become and achieved their level of spirituality, their level of success, their level of fill in the blank, that we too would be without the brokenness and sin that we feel in our hearts and our minds on a weekly basis as we wrestle with those things that live in the darkness. The darkness of our own hearts. And I think a lot of times we want to believe that we'll get past that. That those demons will stop talking to us. They're not real demons, but you know what I mean. Those things that haunt your thoughts. Those desires that you wish you didn't have. Those actions you wish you could pull back and not have done. Whatever the question mark is, whatever that darkness is that you wrestle with, we hold up our heroes sometimes because we believe that if we could be like them, we'd be okay. And it tears us apart. It's hard to recognize that our heroes are flawed as well. Because that means maybe then there's no hope for us getting better. And that's hard to come to grips with. That by following their example, we're not going to get better. And it's humbling. Right? When you get to that point where you recognize that by following a certain series of rules or being like your hero, you're not going to get better. You're not going to have victory over that brokenness, that sin, that besetting weakness. That simply by your efforts and following their model, you're not going to succeed. That is a humbling thing. It's one of those crisis moments that we come to. David has to come to that realization. And he does. It's not printed for you this week, but Psalm 51, David's confession, is exceedingly humbling. David acknowledges the depth of his brokenness. 
and the depth of his need for God to restore and to revive him. It's not about piety, right? What's the psalm say? It's not sacrifices that you desire, not burnt offerings, not religious performance, but a broken and contrite heart. Humility before God and one another. Confession, if you'll notice, that humbling ends up being more about God than it is about us. Again, I wish I had that text in front of you this morning, but if you've got a Bible, you can turn there, but some of you know the basic format of that psalm. What what does David say? Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil. We're reduced to that reality that as human beings, our fundamental problem is we're at war with God. That even as we hurt one another, we're really taking shots at Him. That our deepest anger, deepest hurts, deepest sin is that we are at war. At war with God? We'd like to believe we're not. It's a humbling thing to come to realize that really I'm not on good terms with God. That I don't like Him because He wants to control me. He says he's sovereign. I don't want that. I want to be autonomous. I don't know how it plays out for you necessarily, but the reality is that when we come to the end of ourselves, it is exceedingly humbling. It's hard to begin to admit our sin, and then when we admit our sin and brokenness, the logical end result is humility. Real deep humility. We're warned against false humility in Luke chapter 18. That's where the Pharisee and the tax collector go up to the temple to pray. And it sounds like the Pharisee is confessing things, but all he's really doing is talking about how good he is. Thank God I'm not like. And isn't it great that I no longer, and I do all these good pious things? And the tax collector stands off to the side in the corner and just simply says, have mercy on me. That's hard for us. It's sometimes hard to see in our leaders and our heroes, our pastors and in our elders, because we want them to lead through strength. But I think what we see in Scripture is that part of the way that we create this community of faith in a way that is reflective of God's reality is that we actually lead through humility and brokenness. Paul leads the New Testament church through his brokenness admitting his sin, and therefore lifting up the greatness of the gospel and the work of Christ. The disciples are honest about their own bumbling and fumbling before uh, the resurrection and before Pentecost. Why? Because they can show it is not through their own efforts, not through their own wisdom, but through God that they have any insight to the reality of the kingdom of heaven. When we serve, when we wash one another's feet, if you will. That love, that humility, that leadership, quite frankly, is what we're looking for in our deepest needs and desires. We don't want to be lorded over. We don't really want good examples. We want to be cared for. Because when we come to the end of ourselves, we know our need and our need is to be cared for.
and to be served. But you really can't do that. I can't do that. I can't admit that. I can't admit that I need served. I can't admit that I'm that sinful. I can't admit most things that I've just said in this sermon. Because I can't expose myself that much to you. I can't let you know how broken and fundamentally depraved I really am. And none of you want to know. You really don't. I'm afraid. I'm afraid of what you'll think of me. I'm afraid of whether or not you would still respect me. And yet we heard in the confession of sin this morning that perfect love drives out fear. And we see it so clearly in the cross. How am I going to get past my fear of being transparent? How am I going to get through and you get through your fear of being honest about the human condition? We've got to see the cross. There is Christ naked. No loincloth. Naked. Even the passion of Christ couldn't be that graphic. You know that movie? They tried to be as graphic as possible. We still, as human beings, can't deal with the fact that the second person of the Trinity was beat bloody and hanged naked on a tree. Decency requires us to cover it. There was no decency on the cross. The the humiliation of Christ was complete. And he hadn't even sinned, but that's how much he loves us. That he was willing to be that transparent, that broken, that humiliated. And is there any greater symbol of strength than the cross? You see, the miracle of God's economy is that in our brokenness, in our humility, we are strongest. We are most powerful. We are most profoundly engaging to our loved ones, to our congregations, and to those around us who are our neighbors. It is in our humility that people want to follow us. One beggar showing another beggar where to find bread. It is not in that we have our theology right. Come, you should come to our church. Why? Because we're right. It's not actually that attractive, except to people who have that kind of A-type personality, but even then it doesn't last long. Don't come to our church because we've got X or Y. Come to our church. Come be a part of our fellowship. They're going to want to come if they see the humility and strength that comes through our looking to the cross, to our acknowledgement of what it took for us to have peace with God, the humiliation of our God that we might be glorified. Can you really get worried then about your own reputation about being honest when we see the honesty of God. So lastly then, if it's humbling, it's also healing, which you can already tell that I'm describing. The humility allows us to be healed. Being humble before God allows God then to heal us When we stop fighting Him, it's amazing how sanctification goes forward. Our spiritual growth increases. We are healed. You and I are healed from our brokenness. But not just us 
It's the ones next to us. As God ministers to me and heals me in my brokenness, and some of you may see that, or as you are healed and are broken and then remade and broken and remade again as God does, those around you grow. If you keep it to yourself, both what you're wrestling with and what God has done, how does the body benefit? And then as those who are your neighbors, both near and far, who do not share a faith in Christ, see the way that you are both honest about the wrestlings of this world. And there are a lot of wrestlings. There's raising kids and illness and loss of jobs and go on and on and on. Hurts, betrayals. When our neighbors see us being transparent and then also seeing how we are healed, are they not going to be drawn to wondering how it is we can both be honest and be strong? That's the attraction of the gospel. It heals. So what's it look like? If we have this idea, but does it mean... What, is it, what does it look like? Because this is dangerous ground, right? We could really be way too transparent. We could stray into the TMI. And we can be too reserved. What does it begin to look like? Let me just throw out some ideas because I'm not terribly prescriptive. We're in a Bible study. And it comes for a time to prayer. Let's say it's a smaller group. Not our, we have a large group, but, you know, a group of six, eight people praying together. And somebody says, I really need prayer because I work too much. Now, that's kind of a standard, you know, prayer request. You know, gosh, I shouldn't work as much as I do. I'm, I'm a workaholic. Would you guys pray for me that I'd stop being a workaholic? Okay, that's very, it may be honest, but it's, it doesn't tell me much about you. What if that same prayer request was, I'm working too many hours, and the reality is it's because I don't want to go home. My wife and I don't connect anymore. Or I'm so afraid that if I don't work in, put all these long hours, that I'm going to lose my job and not have enough money because my ultimate security is in how big my bank account is. Now we're starting to, in a proper environment, Tell about our hearts. Be honest and transparent. It's not just that I'm a workaholic. It's there's, a, there's a, a need behind the need, a sin behind the sin. The reality is there's problems in my marriage or there's problems between me and my kids or there's a fear of not having enough. It's that letting people know in the process of conversation and community that you know their pain in having been divorced. You know their pain in having lost a child. You know their pain in wrestling with your faith and doubting God's providence and God's goodness and love in the midst of seeing what seems to be absolutely senseless death and violence. As Christians, we wrestle too with what God is doing and not understanding exactly what His plan is. Are we honest about that? Or do we run too quickly to the phrase, well, God's in control. He is, but right now this stinks. 
Can we say that? Do our neighbors know that? Do you begin to see what I mean? This is what it looks like. It, do, it, it may mean something public, as we've done in our church. It may mean private one-on-one. It may mean in small groups. But the more we can create an environment that mirrors the reality of Scripture, of a willingness to be transparent. Why? People are still ministered to by Psalm 51. The healing power of God's grace. Why does Scripture keep the sins in the Bible? Because we need to see how great God's love is and how He restores The stories of God's redeeming love are the stories that feed the next generation of believers. And your stories of redemption will feed the next generation of Shehalem Valley. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, again, we ask that you would give us wisdom. It is hard to be honest with ourselves. It's hard to be honest with one another. May we know in ever greater degrees the reality that you know that you love us where we are, that you desire to see us grow. Give us the courage to turn on the light and give us the courage to share with one another the great reality of our redemption. In Christ's name, amen.